Will you please join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we are humbled as we come into your word and we look into it and we read it. And Father, we don't want to be uh, just uh, hearers or readers only, but would you help us to be doers? And God, as we, uh, as we encounter this particular text, uh, and it's, it just addresses a deep down heart issue for so many of us, I pray that you would uh, give us grace. Father, don't let us ever be hypocrites. Don't let us be evangelical hypocrites who think that we can sin because we have the gospel and the gospel forgive us and so we're good to go. Father, don't ever let us um, sin in that way. But would you free us, even free us today, use your perfect law of liberty to free us from our sin. And God, will thank you for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the things I hope you're beginning to appreciate about uh, James is that he is not abstract. He is very concrete. He is very earthy and very real. He has every bit uh, the intention that what he talks about is something that we will do. I think it's easy to read other parts of the New Testament and wonder, what do they mean by that? I mean, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What does it mean to be justified? What might it look like to seek first the kingdom of God or to set your mind on heavenly things? These are great questions and ones that we need to ask. But the reality is that James doesn't, he, he, he may talk about it like that, but he doesn't stay there. He becomes very concrete. It might sound spiritual to count it all joy when you fall into various trials but then he begins to press in and admonish us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Well, he says, put away filthiness. That might sound like uh, something abstract or receive the implanted word. He goes farther to make concrete what it means to be a doer of the word. He doesn't just leave it to our imaginations. He offers his own imagination and that's what we have today. We have the imagination of, the, of James to help us apply God's word to our lives and to become concrete in the way that we interact with what God uh, expects of us. So James started being concrete last week when he told us that true religion meant bridling your tongue. It meant visiting orphans and widows in their affliction it meant keeping yourself unstained from the world. Well, now he picks up uh, another concrete illustration just to make sure that we get it. So let's read. In chapter 2, verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man uh, comes into your assembly, or excuse me, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears a fine clothing and you say, sit over here in a good place, while you say to the other poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges 
with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, or excuse me, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So very simply here, what I hope that you will see is that faith in God and the gospel brings mercy that triumphs over partiality and judgment. And it triumphs over, you might say, being a hearer only of the word. I think James is pulling all of these strings from chapter 1 here into, into chapter 2. Uh, strings about faith, strings about um, being doers of the word and not hearers only. And so he's trying to help us figure out what it looks like practically to be a doer. He has just said what it looks like to be a doer of the word is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It could be that he was meditating on Deuteronomy chapter 10 when he was talking about orphans and widows, and then he continues his application of that same scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, it says, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so he tells us that God cares for the widow and the orphan. And then he says, if I was to read the whole thing, beginning in Deuteronomy 10, verse 14, he says, Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God 
who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. So James takes this, these comments about the, the fatherless and the widows, uh, and that's what it means to be a doer of the word, and he expands it to include the rest of Deuteronomy 10, when he says, now I want you to be careful about being partial, especially to the sojourner. And so here is how he goes about it in James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The very first thing he has to say here is that the character of Jesus Christ is such that partiality is off the table for those who are his followers. Partiality with respect to what he's talking about here, with respect to economic partiality, I think certainly with respect to racial partiality, with respect to uh, partiality uh, about age or gender or anything else, he's saying that does not become the character of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, whom we serve. And he gives us, I think, from his imagination, an application of this partiality problem. A man comes in dressed, dressed nicely with gold rings, and you give him a good seat. A man comes in with shabby clothes, and you, you, you don't give him a seat. You make him stand, or you have him sit on the floor. And then he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Who are these people? Who is this rich person and this poor person coming in to the assembly? I think it probably the easiest way to understand it is they are either visitors or they are new believers who are entering the church. They don't know the ropes. They don't know where to sit. They don't know what to do. And so they need help. Well, I suspect that none of you have ever told somebody just here, sit on the floor. You've probably not given them a footstool when they come to church, so maybe this isn't a problem for you. Do you think that's the case? I think it's a, I think it's a problem simply because it's so difficult and so awful. I mean, you probably have felt this. Sometimes the shoe has been on the other foot and you have felt the sting of partiality when somebody plays favorites with somebody else over you. You know it hurts. And so is this really just for rich people versus poor people? Is there only distinction or partiality about people with gold rings and shabby clothes? Or could you apply this more broadly? Could you just simply take uh, assessment of your own heart right now? Think about who you've talked to since you've been here this morning. Think about who you see uh, when you, who you think about when you are uh, going to church. Who do you hope to see? Do you only hang around with people in your life group? Do you only talk to those people that are your friends outside of church? Or do you reach out to those who are not like you, who don't have your background? See, one of my, 
One of the things that breaks my heart is if when I see people give special treatment to those that make them feel good. It makes me feel good to be around people. Some of you more than others, I'm just going to say. But if I act toward those who make me feel good differently from those who make me not feel good, I'm doing what this text says. And so are you. That's the painful thing about this text. We we have to get outside of ourselves and love people, not for how they make us feel, not for what they can do for us, but really for how much the Lord loves them. And that's what comes, that's what comes in just a moment. He articulates a problem like this. You've got someone here making distinctions that ought not be made. It's the same word, actually, as we have in chapter 1, verse 6, when we have uh, somebody who makes two judgments. You have somebody who is uh, not completely sure which way to go. They're here in church and they feel the tug. They feel the pull. They feel the pull of being faithful toward God and, and trying to please Him, and then they feel the tug of how to please other people and get what they need out of them. There's a person who is at the meeting who has of two judgments. He comes to the meeting because he wants to please God, yet he's playing a different game to please other people. He gives us then in verses 5 through 7 the reasons why we should be impartial, some supporting material for why you should be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. He says, listen. And it's a little bit ironic because the, <laughs> the problem here is that you listen and don't do. He said, but listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God, which he has promised to those who love him? Here is more than an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. James is quoting Luke's version in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. It says, almost word for word, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now James points out to us that God has chosen those poor to give them, to make them heirs of the kingdom. And so now they are privileged in the sight of God and underprivileged in the sight of the church. And that is evil. This is an affront, among other things, to the freedom of God. God's electing love showered on people who are different from you is what God has chosen to do for the poor people. To despise them is to despise God's freedom to choose them. They are part of his kingdom because God has promised to make them part of his his kingdom, he has chosen them to include them. Even the language is, it's language we want God to use about us, isn't it? The language is the same as chapter 1, verse 12, when it talks about enduring the trial and remaining steadfast. Uh, then we will receive a crown of life that God has prepared for those who love him. And here you have here you have a description of the poor 
as those who love God and God is promising them a kingdom. And so may God help us. May God help us to not be partial because, because God's concern is not to be partial. God's concern is to love the poor. And it's in his character not to. It's his free choice to love them and not to play favorites. I mean, even Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, God shows no partiality, period. If you are in the kingdom yourself, if you have hope for heaven, it is because God shows no partiality. It is because God looked past your appearance. He looked past your behavior. He looked past your inclination to not follow him, and he loved you anyway. And so God's character is such that uh, he is not partial, and those who claim his name ought not be partial either. And then he gives practical reasons. He gives theological reason, and then he gives practical reasons. The practical reason is that when you dishonor the poor and you honor the rich, you run into trouble because it's the rich who oppress you. That's what he says in verse 6. It's the rich who drag you into court. It's the rich who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. Now you need to know this is not a referendum on uh, wealth or poverty. Because this is not actually about the rich or the poor. It is about the person who is there in the assembly making a decision about who they're going to be nice to, about who they're going to love, about who they're going to show affection for. It's about the person who's making distinctions and showing partiality. That's who this is about. And I think his point here in verse 6 is about power. It, the rich people have power to turn that against you. In fact, the, the Greek word is a compound word for power against. And so his, his thought is that you're nice to the people who will turn on you. You're showing favoritism to people who will actually turn on God himself and blaspheme his good name. And of course, that's been known to happen. And of course, James, I don't know if he's heard about it once in, you know, somewhere in Asia Minor where he's writing this letter to those who are dispersed. Maybe he's heard that this has happened. And the name of Jesus is insulted by the way that people turn on one another in the church. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, the most likely to call, uh, to cause an offense in the church are these rich people that you play favorites with because they have power and the other people don't. And then James begins to apply God's word. He talks about this implanted word that is able to save your souls in chapter 1. He talks about how the, uh, God's word brings us forth by, um, because of God's will. And now he's beginning to talk about the royal law and uh, about the scriptures. And he says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you will love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become transgressors of the law. Make no mistake about it. Partiality is sin because it is against the love your neighbor as yourself expectation of the law. And according to Jesus, this is the second half of the greatest commandment. You violate the greatest commandment when you show partiality. I think because of what we saw with God's theological, the, his theological reason why we should not show partiality, I think we, you violate the, the first part of the greatest commandment as well. You display that you are merely listening to the word only and you become a transgressor. You're not a doer of the word. To do God's word means you love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I'm just going to stop here to love your neighbor as yourself because I do hear things, you know, now and then and over the years. I've heard it over and over. So, yeah, I don't feel welcome when I come to the church. I don't feel like I have friends there. I don't feel fill in the blank. And the reality is there is this love your neighbor as yourself uh, expectation in the perfect law that God has that all of us ought to turn that around rather than thinking, I don't feel. It's like, who here might not feel and how can I go toward them? Who might not feel accepted or loved or befriended? Or who might feel lonely? How can I solve that? This is the way you fulfill this perfect law. And then he goes on, and he really sort of sticks it in here and twists it for us. He says, you don't get to pick and choose which part of the law you like and which parts you don't like, which you want to do and which you don't want to do. Because he clearly says here that if you transgress in one part, you're guilty of the whole thing. That the whole law hinges on the fulfillment of one piece of it. And so when you are partial, what you are doing is you are breaking the entire thing. You're a transgressor if you do everything except for this one thing. The standard is really, really high. But I think God really, really cares for the sojourner. He really, really cares for the widow and the orphan. He really cares for those who are disadvantaged. He cares for the poor. And he wants his church to go out of their way to take the initiative. You think about that. This isn't that much initiative. He said, go visit widows and orphans. That's initiative. Then this the illustration is if somebody comes to you, at least then don't be partial. At least then go out of your way to talk to somebody you're less comfortable with. Because if you don't do that, you're a transgressor breaking the whole law. And so then in verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. I think it's really interesting that he, that the way that he uses this phrase, you are about to be judged by the law of liberty. See, we don't put liberty and judgment in the same sentence very often. But he pulls in the law of liberty from chapter 1, verse 25, talking about looking into that law and changing the way that you behave. And it gives you freedom from sin. It gives you freedom from partiality. It gives you freedom from playing favorites. It gives you freedom to love your neighbor as yourself. And this law of liberty, I believe, uh, is the law of God fulfilled in Christ. It is Christ achieving everything that God intended with his law and bringing it to its perfection and offering to us freedom as we participate with Christ, identify with Christ as he keeps this law. James articulates the gospel in his next phrases. He says, judgment is merciless to those who do not show mercy. Make no mistake about it. Sin brings judgment. Playing favorites, even in a church assembly, brings judgment. Think of all the worse things you've done than that. They all invite God's judgment. If you neglect God's rule through his word simply by being a mere hearer and not a doer, you stand under judgment. I mean, I, what can you say but yikes, right? What can you say about that? I mean, for me, I just have to say guilty as charged. But that's not the final word, is it? The final word here is that mercy triumphs over judgment. What a, what a beautiful theological statement here. I, I think he intends it to be theological, but let me just step back to the ethical part. Okay? The ethical part is somebody comes into your assembly and he said the problem is you judge them. The problem is you you make decisions about them and you have evil motives rather than showing them mercy. So ethically, mercy triumphs over judgment. The way out of this is to apply mercy to people that you see that you're less familiar with or less comfortable with. That's the ethical change, but that derives from the foundation of a, the theological basis here, which is mercy triumphs over judgment because God showing you mercy triumphs over the judgment that you otherwise deserve. I was just reading even in my quiet time this morning in Isaiah chapter 30, it says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. It exalts God when he shows mercy to us. How much more does it glorify him when we display that mercy to other people? But I interrupted myself. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. 
Blessed are those who wait for him. And I thought of this verse and with respect to the message because God's a God of justice who delights to show mercy. And here James puts those two together and says, mercy triumphs over judgment. All along, James has been presenting us with a God who can be trusted. He can be trusted in trials. Ask him for wisdom. Then he turns it up a notch and suggests that his word can be trusted. Because when you act on it, rather than just hear it, God, God will bless you. And now in chapter 2, he confronts us with our own sinful heart. He shows us how easy it is for us to slide right in to sin. He talks about God's implanted word that gives us a new birth, a law that's perfect and gives liberty. And essentially what he's doing is saying, there is good news for you here. There is good for, news for you if you're inclined to play favorites. If you're inclined, inclined to not bridle your tongue or to be stained by the world, there's good news. Because the good news is that God is at work in his people because of the work of Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross, God delights to show mercy. God is keeping his new covenant promise here. He is implanting his word. He is putting his spirit within us. He is taking out our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. He is changing our desires. In a word, he's showing us mercy. And mercy triumphs over the judgment we deserve. I just love the play on words here, where he switches from the bad judgment that we show when we play favorites to the judgment that we deserve because we play favorites. And then he says, mercy triumphs over that judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment because God's inclined to show you mercy. And then when you receive that mercy and dispense it to other people, that triumphs over that bad judgment that you show them as well. How precious is it that God shows mercy to those of us who don't deserve it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's mercy that spares us for judgment. Ephesians 2 tells the whole story here. I mean, James, I, one of the things that's, that's a little bit hard for us, I think, with James is that he is a little bit... Um, he doesn't use very many words about this. He doesn't use the words we're familiar with to talk about the gospel. He talks about the implanted word. He talks about uh, you know, God being trustworthy. He talks about God showing mercy. But the Apostle Paul, his words we're pretty familiar with with regard to the gospel. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also live, all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that at the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, make no mistake about this. Yes, James makes, he makes our lack of mercy concrete with his illustration. He makes concrete the need we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only by his illustrations. He makes concrete the need for us to receive mercy when we show ourselves to be transgressors. And so we have to love James for not leaving it ambiguous, but making it concrete. I want to suggest to you too, though, that Jesus very much made it concrete for us. He very much made it clear what it means for us to be made right with him and to have communion with him. Jesus and James are on the same page, I think, here. I mentioned already that James highlights this new covenant with the implanted word. And the word that brings us, the law that brings us freedom. Jesus made this really concrete for his disciples. And his last night on this earth, he had dinner with them. And he made it clear that they were his and he was theirs. And one day, things would all be made new and all be made right. And until then, they were to remember him as they broke bread and as they uh, drank wine. He had a concrete streak as well. That this is not just some spiritual life off somewhere in the distance. Communion with Jesus is for here and now. Union with each other is here and now. And so Jesus makes it concrete as well. And today it's the, it's really our opportunity to remember Jesus in that. To remember that Jesus wants us not merely to trust him in theory, but in practice. And even here as we have this practice of trusting in him. He wants to make sure that we're right with each other, that we're not showing favorites, that we're not playing games with one another. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I want to just encourage you, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, first of all, this is for you. This is for you to express your unity with the, the risen Lord Jesus, and it's for you to express your unity with the church. But I want you to realize if there is something between you and a brother, if there is 
Maybe it's favoritism. <laughs> Maybe it's the opposite of favoritism. Maybe you're really frustrated with them. Maybe it's they've hurt you or you've hurt them. You know, this is, this is a time to confess that and repent. Because this is a time for union and unity. And so I just want to encourage you, uh, even if the person that has hurt you isn't there, you're going to need to make it a priority to be reconciled with them. You're going to need to make it a priority to be united with your church and your church family. Because that's what Jesus had in mind when he shared a meal with his disciples. That's what James had in mind when he said, yeah, don't play favorites with one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so let's, let's just humbly go before the Lord. And what we'll do is we'll pray and then we'll celebrate communion together. Um, and then may God use our remembrance of Christ May God use our um, confrontation with his word to help us get right with one another and help us get right with him. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is much easier when everything's all theory and there aren't real life people in our lives that make it hard and hurt us. It's easier when I'm not confronted with my own inclination to like some people more than others and to treat them differently. Father, would you, would you forgive me for that? Would you, even as this comes into the light in our own, even maybe for some of us in the privacy of our own homes, would you cleanse us? Would you help us walk in the light as you are in the light so that we might have fellowship with one another? Father, we believe that that's what you want. And so would you help us? And Father, as we recall the, the death of our Lord for our sin, that he might show us mercy, that that mercy might triumph over um, judgment. God, would you be gracious to us? Give us grace to love you. Father, we, we long for the kingdom that's to come that you've promised to those who love you. And so we submit ourselves again to you and ask for your help. In the name of Jesus, amen. Go ahead and take the elements there. Because the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you please pray with me again? 
Oh, Heavenly Father, that that you would reenact the meal of the Passover to remind us that you pass over our sins. That you would fellowship with your disciples to remind us of your desire to fellowship with us. You would institute the Lord's Supper to remind us of the death of Jesus that enacts the new covenant and causes us to fellowship with one another. And Father, that you would give it to us to point us forward to the day when we will eat and drink with you in your heavenly kingdom. God, we love you for it. We thank you you've promised a kingdom to those who love you. And so, Father, will you grant us grace to be the kind of people who show mercy, to be the kind of people who receive mercy and to look to you for more mercy today, later today, tomorrow, this week. Father, we are people who need to be marked as recipients of mercy and dispensers of mercy. Would you help us, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.